Okay. Today, my guest is Professor Gatu Manja. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Gatu as a person. Professor Ahuja is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally, is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very brief uh, snapshot. Professor Ahuja is a professor of management and organizations at Cornell. His research interests include competitive analysis, technology and innovation, globalization, and the use of interorganizational arrangements such as mergers, acquisitions, and alliances. Gautam received several global research awards, including Tim, a Distinguished Scholar for Lifetime Achievement, Shandal, Best Paper Award from the SMS, SMS Knowledge and Innovation Best Paper Award, the Sage Pandi and West Publishing Award for Outstanding Research in Org Theory, and the Free Press Award for Best Dissertation in Strategic Management from Informs. Gautam received the BPS Wiley Outstanding Educator Award for his lifetime teaching contributions. Bloomberg Businessweek ranked him number two on its list of most popular professors in the US. He serves as an editor-in-chief of Org Science and has also served as associate editor for Management Science, as a senior editor for Org Science and Strategy Science. He has also served as the Tim Division Chair at LM. Thank you, Gautam, for joining us. My, my pleasure and honor, absolutely. Uh, Gautam, what did you want to become when you were a child? It's a good question. I. Uh... I think like most children, early on, I had the most unreasonable expectations and I thought I would become a cricketer. But, uh, you know, doing that with talent is difficult enough. Without talent, it proved to be a non-starting non as a career. <laughs> and uh, how did you uh, decide to follow a career in academia? Uh, that's, uh, it's actually, I'm, I'm what I would call an accidental academic. I... Um, uh, was uh, I was working in industry after my MBA, and I got very fortunate that I, I kind of moved up in the organization very quickly, pretty much uh, three years after joining the organization as a management trainee. And this was one of the world's you know premier uh, uh, consumer product companies, global companies. Uh, I ended up uh, heading a quarter of the country on it. So the the the, the sales side, it was, it was the regional manager for. Uh, uh, for uh, about a, you know the north north region and which was about a quarter of the country, and uh, while I enjoyed the career on a daily basis, I was left wondering uh, that if somebody had asked me coming out of my MBA program, here is where you couldn't be in three years. I would have said, okay, what do you want me to give up? My arm or my or my arms or my legs? Because it's, <laughs> it was that unlikely an outcome. But when it occurred, it. Uh, you know, it was obviously fun and challenging and, and you know, I put this, you know, it, it, it really engaged myself with that job. But then by the side, the thought was already emerging that uh, if everything has gone my way and I'm still missing something in life, I'm on a daily basis, I'm very happy and I enjoyed that job every day of my life. And I think I was a better manager than I ever will be as an academic. But the fact that something was missing uh, uh, prompted me to think about Let's go and find it, and uh, and that's how I ended up, uh, kind of uh, looking for that passion uh, that I thought might be there. And uh, I didn't I didn't come into academia because I thought it was going to be the answer, but I didn't have any other answers, so I thought it might be 
an effort worth making. This is unusual, isn't it? I mean, you're giving up a, uh, not a sure bet, but a very uh, confident uh, position and uh, getting into something uncharted. You don't know what's going to happen at the end. I mean, obviously you've accomplished huge uh, things. You, you, you made it obviously, but what if it didn't work out? Uh, wouldn't it be too risky? It was an incredible risk. I, you know, it, it, it was definitely an incredible risk. And I sometimes, and I'm a very conservative person otherwise. So it has always mystified me how I managed to, to take the risk. And now, see, risk taking is paradoxically easier when you have nothing to lose. When things have gone well for you, taking a risk is very hard. Yeah. Because then you're, you're really letting yourself uh, uh, fall. But I think I came into academia on the basis of a mistaken, you know, on the basis of some mistakes, really, in the sense that I came looking to solve a problem that I thought I had, and I thought academia might be a solution. Uh, and it turns out that I could have found a solution to that problem anywhere. I didn't have to come to academia. But uh, I, uh, you know, and by, by then it was it was too late. See, the, the way I'll, I'll explain this, and this might be helpful to people, uh, who you, um, uh, you know, who might uh, watch this is that, you know, we, uh, and, you know, the, this idea of what, what is passion in a sense, what, what, what is something that drives you? Uh, this is a slightly longer version of the story, but I'll tell you in as short terms as possible. See, uh, Shakespeare uh, is very famous for, you know, a bunch of his work, but probably his most famous work is Romeo and Juliet. And uh, in Romeo and Juliet, he sets up what I call a test for passion. How much do you love something, right? And uh, the test for passion he sets up at the end of the plot is essentially, would you love something enough to die for it, right? And uh, so that, because if you remember the story of Romeo and Juliet, that it ends in, in death essentially for the lovers. Uh, but there is another side, you know, there's another play of Shakespeare which actually has a similar plot up to a point. It's called Troilus and Cressida. And uh, the Cressida, you know, the story of Troilus and Cressida is very similar to Romeo and Juliet. You know, it's a, it's a love story that's destined to end in disaster. Uh, Troilus is a Trojan prince. And uh, Shakespeare ends the story, but there is a, in, in legend, there is, a, there is a variant of the story that carries beyond the part where Shakespeare ends it at. And I think, in some senses, that's where I got, uh, you know, in terms of sense-making, I, I, I make sense of my move, is that uh, uh, in the legend version of the story, uh, God asks Troilus, uh, you know, that I will open the doors of eternal happiness for you because you are welcome in, in, you know, in heaven for all time. But you must give up Cressida and, you know, but you must you have to give up your earthly existence and hence Cressida. And uh, his response is an amazing one. What he says is, uh, for a moment more with Cressida, I would give up all of eternity. So just thinking of it analytically, you see that uh, what Romeo gives up is a future life, but a future life is going to have both good and bad things happen to it, right? Uh, but what Troilus gives up is a sure shot, a guaranteed spell at happiness for all eternity. 
So in some senses, you can think of there being the second test. You see, the Juliet test is, am I passionate about, you know, am I really passionate about something? And uh, the Cressida test I see is, am I so passionate that I want to give up everything for something else, right? Uh, because it is in some senses even more dominating uh, a test as this thing. And, and what I, uh, you know, I was very happy in my academic, in my non-academic job. I was doing well. It was wonderful and uh, in many respects. But I think if I have to make sense of this exposed, it is simply that I had found Juliet, but I was still looking for Cressida. And <laughs> in, in looking for Cressida, I ambled into, mistakenly into academia. And then uh, as I thought about my life over the last 20 odd years, and the pandemic was a great opportunity to do that, it struck me that actually what gives you satisfaction is not success, whether in academics or outside. What gives you, you know, in a sense, uh, what, what is a fulfillment of passion in some sense is uh, the idea that uh, you have, you know, you have done something, you made, made good use of your life, right? And, uh, and it turns out that that's why I said I made a mistake in some senses coming into academia is that you can use your life in many good ways outside academia too. So uh, the fact that I came into academia that I, you know, I was met with some degree of success here and so on is just one way that I could have realized, you know, the, the Cressida in my life. And, you know, it, it could as well have happened if I continued to work. So the idea is we often go looking for things in the outside world when the answers are really to be found inside us. And that was my kind of my lesson uh, uh, from this, you know, from this whole thing. And uh, I know I'm, I'm very glad that I did what I did, but uh, something tells me that as long as you have found a reason, you know, what the French call the reason, the a reason of existence, uh, whatever you do is good. Yeah. So you can come into academia and then you decide I don't like it and go elsewhere and I'll make sense of my life. If you're making sense of your life, you're in good shape. Sure, but you know, in all honesty, once you get in the pipeline, all these things exposed are logical and serendipitous, but exante, uh, things are beyond risk uh, because you do certain things that are expected of you, mm -hmm. right? And uh, the, the path not taken is not an, even an option uh, because it doesn't even appear in the choice set. Uh, I got uh, something that is not on your CV uh, that people might find interesting about you. That's not in my CV. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, my CV has what I would argue is, is the least relevant parts of me, as, as most of our CVs. Uh, but, uh, you know, just for the fun part of it, uh, I um, used to be a, a very successful quizzer. Uh, I mean, at the, at the, by quizzing, you know, we were familiar with the, with the show Jeopardy. Hmm. And uh, we had, uh, you know, when I was in school, college, and even in my professional life, uh, early professional life, uh, I was actually... Uh, a very very successful quizzer, and uh, you know, I, and, and I'm, you know, at the kind of the national level or whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, at the school level, I won kind of national sort of awards, and at the college level, you went had all these competitions across the country and and there too as well, and then uh, there was a thing called the All India sort of, which is like the national championship of the type, uh, All India North Star was, and I I was you know 
two times a winner and three times a finalist. So wow, yeah. So, so uh, this is like, uh, are they asking trivia or are they asking uh, actual uh, academic output? Like, uh, it here's the thing. The it's uh, it's the Indian version of it is drawn from the British version, which is called Brain of Britain, and okay. so okay. It, it includes it, it it requires a wide breadth of knowledge, but the questions are not so straightforward. They require the application of that knowledge in some logical way to reach answers at times. Sometimes they are straightforward, but at the highest levels of competition, sometimes they require you to make an informed assessment or guess at some piece of knowledge which will be useful to unpack another piece of knowledge. So it's, it's very abstract in its this thing. And, uh, you know, um, the, uh, the idea, and, and here is, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I, uh, this is actually funny. I'm not even sure that it was right, but what I mean by logic is, and you're Turkish, so I'll, I'll bring this up. Uh, one of the times the questions that was asked was, uh, uh, you know, uh, Kamal Atatürk was the founder of modern Turkey. And uh, so he was very, very clear that he wanted to improve the status of women. So one of the things he did was he tried to ban the burqa. And you can tell me if this is corresponds to Turkish history or not, because I didn't know, but I did make the right, what turned out to be the right guess, at least as far as with respect to the quiz master's information. And, but unfortunately, uh, since burqa wearing was a very strongly, deeply established, you know, traditional, this thing, uh, uh, he, uh, uh, it didn't work because people just didn't follow the law. He then came up with a second version of the law and then burqa wearing dramatically increased, uh, but dr dramatically dropped, increased. increased. And so the question was, what was the second law? I had no idea, and you know, I, I knew about Kamal Atatürk and so on, but Turkish constitutional history was a little bit too deep for me. <laughs> you know, uh, I grew up in India, and uh, uh, so I, I. But I made a logical guess, which the quiz master claimed was right. I never actually subsequently verified it, uh, but I always thought that that was a very good illustration of the kinds of ways that they expected you to think through things. All of it in fifteen seconds. So in case you're wondering what the answer was that I gave, which I maintain again, I'm not sure whether it was correct or not, but it was given as correct. It was uh, uh, my logic was uh, to change a very strong existing tradition in a traditional country. Something dramatic has to be the change embodied. Now, something that will cause social stigma is one of the first things that causes people to change their behavior. So, the guess I took was that all women of a certain type who were, you know, must wear the burqa. And I mean, I, the guess I took was all, all prostitutes must wear the burqa. Now, I'm not sure if that was correct or not. And you may choose to effectively delete this. <laughs> it's going to create trouble. But uh, I don't know how it was defined, but that was the, it was purely a logical response without a knowledge of history. And uh, according to the quiz master, that was right, that it was basically that they, that certain classes of people would be required to wear the murka. Now, whether you would, you know, uh, whether that's accurate or not, you can, you can perhaps look up and tell me. It is not. Uh, I can tell you it is not. Uh -huh. uh, burka is the, the covering of the face as well. Uh, in Turkey, uh, in the Ottoman times, it was head covering, uh, like a regular scarf. But uh -huh. the color was black. Uh -huh. 
uh, black was the color simply because it was the cheapest fabric uh -huh. uh, at the time. Uh, people didn't have, have, have uh -huh. any, uh -huh. uh, but it was never the face covering. So, uh, but I think in, in your uh, uh, quiz or in, in this competition, they are looking at reasoning. And I think you are making great connections. And if I, if I can generalize you, you know, you're going to the extremes of uh, successful extremes of each of the venues that you're taking, and it, it can't be luck. So this is not luck. You know, if uh, you can't get lucky three times in a quiz uh, uh, setting, you can't get in three years. People don't give you a national account after an MBA. I mean, how old were you? Like 25, 28? Like how yeah, is I was 26, yeah, 26 or 27. So, you know, this is not luck. You know, there's something I'm trying to figure out. This is quite unusual as an interview, but I'm trying to figure out what have you got that is driving all these uh, repetitive success in a sustainable, uh, consistent way. What's the, the source of consistency in your life that is driving all this success? But yeah, do, do you work all the time? Do, like, are you superior in uh, IQ? Like, what, what is it? I suspect that there is, it's like with all these questions, there is a, a little bit of, of multiple things. I think the first is, uh, I think I was lucky with a lot of, with, with in the most fundamental ways that I uh, got an endowment in terms of uh, being able to read things and remember them, being able to logically work through things and so on. So that's clearly a part of it. The second part of it has to do more with personality. And I think uh, if people find you non-threatening and you're engaged with people in a reasonable way, at least in, in an organization, that, that is kind of a meaningful uh, you know, feature of your this thing. So possibly that could be a part of it. But there is another part of it, which is uh, there is a very significant drive. And... The drive is, yes, I do work a lot. I still work seven days a week. And I think, uh, see, part of it goes back, and I don't want to get too much into the, into the weeds on this, but, uh, or into the details. See, I lost my father at age five. And uh, my mother uh, brought me up. And uh, when my father died, she had the equivalent of about $7. That was a total net worth. Hmm. And... Uh, uh, we lost our home uh, two or three weeks after he died. And so <clears throat> I guess uh, I lived my life on a razor's edge. Uh, in, a, in a country like India, uh, you had very limited choices and very limited opportunities if you were born into that kind of scenario. So either you did well or else you had no chance. But doing well was no guarantee of success either. Why? Because sometimes the number of opportunities was so low that even amongst the, the people who did well, only the, a very small proportion of them would get in. So you just get into the habit of, of sort of excelling, trying to excel, because there is no other pathway to escape. Sure. Yeah. And... Uh, and so I think that drive was there, but I think the single biggest component and that applies to both the drive, it applies to the genetic endowment uh, is really my mother. 
So, uh, I want to ask you about, uh, thank you, about research now. Uh, again, differently, we'll, we'll do, do this interview differently. Uh, as an editor-in-chief and associate editor, editor-in-chief, co-editors, all, all those top editorial positions, you, you're in a position to sway the research to uh, new directions, uh, you're basically forming uh, different trajectories. What can you say about the future, the next five to 10 years in the field, especially for international strategy or strategic management of international firms? Yeah. What's going to be the next big questions in the field? Sure. Uh, I think firstly, I'll, I'll caveat what you said. I, I don't think that uh, any individual really changes the direction of the world, at least not through an editorial role very significantly. But I think I, I buy the general premise that, you know, you, you look at some, you know, the, the, there is some influence there. But for the most part, that influence comes out of your work as an author rather than as an editor. But, uh, you know, you do police the journals, you do get to choose, uh, you know, what areas you want to push on and some that's there. And so my take is that actually as an international scholar, you know, as a person, I worry a lot about the world for the next 10, 15 years. As an international scholar, it is an incredible set of opportunities because we have so far focused on how the world was going global. And now we are faced with a very real situation of what we would call deglobalization or at least fragmentation rather than globalization, right? So, uh, you know, you can see in every dimension, uh, companies are going to have to deal with a variety of challenges, right? The, the, the world is splitting into a multipolar setting and the pandemic has made it clear that uh, the optimal length of the supply chain is actually a much shorter than the pure economics of everyday functioning would tell you. In everyday functioning, it makes sense to assemble parts from 100 different countries in, in the 101st country, depending on by the theory of comparative, comparative advantage. But what this is saying is there are things beyond comparative advantage that boundaries sort of break, become very real. We saw that in a short experimental way with the pandemic, but the political situation globally is now saying there's going to be a multipolar world and both on the financial and in the real sector, people are going to have to uh, choose uh, their, their, their scope of activity uh, is not the first best, which is, uh, you know, a world where everybody trades with everybody, but the second best, which is a world in which parts of the world do not trade with other parts of the world, at least not with every possible this thing. And whether you look at semiconductors, you look at materials, uh, those tensions are, are emerging. So helping us understand how to navigate that, I think is a brand new frontier here. Sure, sure. Um, I mean, I, I want to follow up on this deglobalization thing. Uh, recently, we talked about populism, nationalism, all that stuff, but the, the background of it is the shift in ideologies and shift in ideology from liberalism, liberal democracies into more uh, realist ones, like realism is going to be picking up and therefore nationalism is going to be picking up. Uh, for, for research, uh, is it going to change the way we should be approaching strategies, international strategy research, uh, international entrepreneurship, 
or uh, are the variables going to change? Are the context going to change? Uh, I think uh, the many of the constructs will remain common, except that we are switching the world to measures of you know uh, measures on the other end of the scale. It's still the same scale, but it's shifting it to to other ends of the scale. But at the, at the same time, there will be new work required, which looks at how you integrate financial or slash economic considerations with political considerations much more closely, right? And uh, that is happening both within the countries and across uh, the world. So yes, your optimal choice might be to import part X from country Y. But if you look at, the, in the past, you would look at the expected value, expected cost alone. Now you're saying, well, I have to consider the variance of that cost as well because there are going to be certain periods of time when I'm suddenly going to be stuck without anything. Now, given that I need to give the second moment also some amount of you know, weightage, what is my best choice to do this? How, how do I go about doing this? And I'm not sure that we have all the answers to those things. And some part of the answers will come from reasoning that we know to be tried and true. And other parts of the reasoning may be different. Yeah. Hmm. About... Uh when you were going through the PhD program, people who impacted your life, um, who were like role models, uh, who had the most impact on your upbringing in the PhD program? You see, I think that's a fairly straightforward question to answer. And it's not so much because of content, but more because of behavior and the kind of person they were. That's Will Mitchell, mm-hmm. he's my advisor. Uh, but uh, he left a very strong and clear uh, impact on everybody that was around him, not because of anything he said, but of, because of who he was. He was completely the scholar's scholar. And that's all he, you know, he ever thought about. He was available to you for that, from that perspective, whenever you wanted him to be. He had high standards. He was very service-oriented. And all of those things where every day you were learning a lesson, it's just that he wasn't teaching, he was doing it. So I think that he, he would be by far be uh, uh, a, a wonderful, uh, you know, this uh, sort of role model. But uh, I think there are many others because uh, there are the many others are the people that you see around you who have such wonderful values that you always feel I could be a better person than I am. I could be a better scholar than I am. Uh, There are also uh, a lot of people around you who have achieved a lot, but they remain very, very humble. And it's not some fake humility. They're genuinely, you know, they see this as a a process in which you are, you know, uh, just a part of that process and the process is bigger than, than anybody. And that's what everybody should be working for. So again, these are, what I would call inspiring role models. You, you know, we all have our limits as human beings, and I'm sure that I have more than my share. So I can't say that I have been an embodiment of that. All I can say is that the presence of these people has pulled me to be better than I would have been otherwise. Hmm. Interesting. And we're yet to discover your limits, by the way. Uh, okay. Um, the top three mistakes that you see junior faculty or PhD students make, uh, things that you would say don't uh, or do these uh, things to improve your academic life. 
see, I'm, I'm very uh, worried about ever saying this is good or bad for somebody else. Advice giving is a very personal, you know, risk that you take because many things that make sense for me, conditional on who I am, would make no sense for somebody else. Right? So I would, I'm not sure I want to say here are three mistakes that you will or will not make, but in general ways, but I will speak in more general terms and then you can make sense of those in the context that you're in. So the first is be clear about the characteristics of our profession and then choose the effort level and type based on your own you know, sort of utility function, okay? So what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is, this is a profession that is very front-loaded in its demands. And it's also all-encompassing. I mean, I, in, in any profession, when you spend a whole year or two writing up a paper with a, which is going to have a rejection probability of 90%, it's no secret that it's not going to be easy to, to succeed. But there are, I wouldn't say, oh, so therefore you must do this. You must give up everything else in life and focus on this. What I'm saying is you have to adjust your point of view to what is best for you. You can make, you know, but don't expect to, you know, make one set of choices and then expect returns of another type. So if you say, yes, I am going to do my best and I'm going to really focus on trying to get a publication in every year because that is what is required to make me succeed and I'm going to shoot for the top journals only, that's good. But it's as good to say, you know what? I'm going to write a paper every second or third year. I'm just going to spend a lot of time on each paper and I'm going to learn that. But I'm also going to do these other things. And those other things could be uh, spend a little bit more time with your family or spend you know, a little bit time doing good for the world or whatever it is that you that is your utility function. But recognize that, that the rewards are going to be, external rewards are going to be based on whatever is the final produced output or whatever, right? So the idea here is, if you are going to say, pick the second path, then also be clear that you are choosing to make yourself the master of your destiny or the mystery of your, you know, or the, or the um, sort of person of your, who's hand, you know, in charge of your destiny, which means the set of questions you ask yourself are different. It's not, did I succeed in getting X number of publications and did I succeed in, in achieving this particular award or, or metric. No, it is, did I do the best that I could? And I, did I do it to the best of my ability, right? Did I, that's, given the choices I made, did I do the best on them? Was I true to myself? If that's it, it then that's a lot more, I'd suspect easier to live with than to constantly sort of worry about how others are doing, which is what the first, you know, world will, will let you, will become an issue with, right? There will people will, you'll always start saying, oh, I'm not as good as somebody else, or I haven't published as much as somebody else. You know, we're all different things in different, in different ways. And we are all contributing to the mass path of academia. You know, not a, there's no reason to believe that the people with the most ideas are also the people with the most important ideas. And, you know, citations that are, are not the way to look at it. And more broadly, uh, ideas can influence people in many different ways. And so, you know, if you've, it's a river. If you've contributed to that stream in some way, be, you know, feel good. There's no reason, you know, it's a river. It's, it was existed before you came. It's going to exist after you left. So the point is, are you adding something to the river? And 
you know, is the, are you or are you going to say I'm going to be the the only sort of font here? Interesting. Uh, for the sake of time, the last question: What's the question that I should have asked you but didn't? Pardon? What's the question I should have asked you but haven't? Well, so the question uh, to a person who is an expert in quizzing: uh, What is the question that you should have answered? Well, you should, I think the, the question to ask is, uh, one question that would be important is, uh, what do you see is, you know, because you began this, I'm not, you, you began with saying I've been successful, I have a pattern of success. So I can see a set of questions that you could ask associated with that is that first of all, does that pattern of success make you happy? Or alternately, are there failures that you regret? So, uh, and I, I'll answer, try to answer both at the same time, which is that I'm obviously, you know, there's no way for me to say that I would be happier under this circumstance than under, under another, right? Because there is the, in life, you never see the counterfactual. So, but I'm, you know, uh, I, what I would say is I'm, I'm reasonably happy with what I've achieved in the academic world, if, if that's what your, you know, criteria is. But I'm not, I don't feel that I've achieved that much because the reality is that I know what I was capable of. I know what I could have given an entire lifetime starting over again, what I could have done. And I, and I think I, I didn't do a very good job on it. I spent my time in too many different ways. Uh, and uh, if I wanted to succeed, I could have, you know, perhaps focused myself better on that, or I could have picked a different line of work to have, you know, and had a, had a, to have had an impact that would have stayed with me and saying, okay, I've done good in the world. So in the end, I've, I've ended up saying that I, uh, which is why the paradox is, because that's where I came into the profession is saying, on a daily basis, I had a good time. Am I happy with what I have done with what I got? And the answer is probably no. And corresponding to that is my biggest failure is that I could never take an entrepreneurial risk. And I don't mean entrepreneurial risk just in, in a business sense, is that uh, I, I never had the guts to go out and, and challenge the world in some way. And I think that was also a part of my utility function which if it wasn't a part of my utility function, it didn't matter, but it was. And so it remains, as I would say, a regret, but then you make peace with your regrets and, and carry on with life. So that's what I would say is that, you know, uh, for, as a lesson to somebody, if there's a lesson to be taken, it is that uh, I think I was too conservative in my thinking, partly driven possibly by my risk aversion, which was in part driven possibly by my early life situation. But the world is different today. And uh, if you're young today, I think there are a lot more opportunities and a lot more risk taking that you can do than I thought was possible. So if I had to go back and correct things, that's the one thing I might do differently is I might say, what are the biggest risks I could take that could actually leave me with a chance of making some, you know, mark on the world, not for the world, but for myself, that's what I would have done.
actually, uh, there's an alternative explanation for that one. There's this psychologist, I forgot her name. <laughs> she works with primates and um, uh, monkeys, basically, and psychology of monkeys. And they give them uh, toys, toys that my mother gave me. It was a uh, uh, lid, a lid of a pot. And it was my steering wheel. Uh, I used it as a truck. I used it as a car. It was the item to take me to the moon and all that stuff. It, it's, uh, it created a lot of um, creativity, let's say, right? And they give uh, these things to the monkeys. And they also give them little uh, toys that you can find on the shelves in Walmart targets. And uh, these toys are actually only one function. It only does one thing. And there's nothing really creative about anything. It doesn't, uh, the idea that the research is about creativity in these uh, animals. And the uh, young ones actually don't have options. They have very limited set of options. And the options that you had when you were growing up were infinite almost. But the, the, the young ones are almost uh, not predetermined, but uh, uh, the, the channels are very unidirectional, right? So, uh, I mean, uh, in your interview, uh, I, I see the points of regret that you mentioned. I see the points of uh, second best alternatives that you, you, you mentioned. But uh, you really, uh, one thing is about focus. You said you wish you focused on one thing. Um, But would that really be the actual optimal uh, strategy? I don't, uh, well, what do you think about that? No, I think that it can be the actual optimal strategy if that one thing is what really you should be focusing on, right? If that is the key to your utility function. And my problem was twofold is that I, and maybe they're, they're partly correcting for each other in some respects. When I say focused on one thing, I know my Vita could have been much longer. But I spent a lot of time on service. I spent a lot of time on you know, administration. I spent a lot of time on teaching, more than I should have in, uh, in, this, in, in the opinions of those that mattered. Right? Uh, those are common elements of feedback I got. Uh, especially on the teaching side is that you invested too much. And I understand that the profession has these uh, these things but uh, i enjoyed the teaching part so i i you know i i lived for that in in sense i uh, i'm happy that i made that call but uh, had i been more focused uh, i could have produced more right but then that completely brought me to the second part of my answer which was that uh, you've got to make sort of some sense of uh, you know what is it that appeals the most to you and i'm not sure that as you said I'm not sure that a longer Vita would have made me any happier. What I could have focused on is something big that I don't want to get into here, which I could have done and I had the opportunity occasionally and I, I just didn't have the guts. That's what I should have focused on and gone back. So my two regrets are not orthogonal to each other. They are connected with each other. Is that I was in the thing that I chose to do I didn't stick enough to the focus element that was required to it, required for it. And then perhaps I may have chosen uh, something that wasn't the best thing for me to do. 
And that seems That's, very paradoxical. It's yet to come. It is going to be happening in the next phase of your life, probably. Uh, Gautam, thank you so much for uh, for your time, for this very interesting interview. I learned a lot. I enjoyed it a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, can we just speak after the recording is over? You just stop. Sure.